Now, at that time, the, the general consensus and climate was a bullying, as usual, by the establishment as to what serious cinema is. So it was really revolutionary. Based on what the Truffaut Hitchcock book was, we became radicalized as movie makers. It was almost as if somebody had taken a weight off our shoulders and said, yes, we can embrace this, we could go. My name's Tom Jennings, and this is the 24 Frames cast. Um, it's good to be back uh, podcasting again uh, with the 24 Frames cast. And I was so pleased um, as to the response to my return to the airwaves or the pod waves, whatever we want to call them. Um, so many of you expressed, just seemed to be anyway, so genuinely pleased that I had returned. It was actually quite humbling. And it's always so nice to know, and I find it tremendously motivating that... Uh, people out there care and it, it, I suppose it was shown in the stats really I noticed that there was a lot of downloads and I received some from rather lovely correspondence which I want to talk a little bit about at the beginning of this episode before I get to all that though um, on this episode I'm going to be talking about the documentary Hitchcock Truffaut directed by Kent Jones I'm also going to be taking a look at the recent blu-ray release of the 1958 film The Vikings and so many of you uh, rather enjoyed the guilty pleasure aspect of the last episode. I've decided I'm going to make this a kind of a semi-regular thing. Um, it's, it seemed to kind of provoke some interesting reactions from you. A lot of people saying that I um, that they don't think Escape to Victory really comes under the banner of a guilty pleasure uh, as such. And were more uh, kind of a lot of people I noticed had, had, had told me they had gone back and uh, rewatched it or hadn't actually ever seen it before. I actually thought it was a very good film, which I'm, I'm really pleased to hear. Actually, yeah, it's the best compliment I get from listeners is when they say that they watch a film that I've talked about that they've never heard of and really enjoy it so I'm really glad on that front however I can readily assure you that the film I've decided to talk about in the guilty pleasure section this in this episode is so bad that I'm not even going to tell you what it is now because I'm for fear that you will uh, unsubscribe and never listen to me again so um, I'm going to leave it as a surprise and you can cringe along with me I've also been thinking as well of doing another segment where I'll uh, perhaps look at a film that's gone completely under the radar and kind of come along and disappeared. Um, perhaps you know, I, I might quit something, one you might have missed or something like that, but I'm definitely, I've got a few contenders lined up for that as well. And I'm not just going to be reviewing kind of one film at a time. This is just because uh, I've got so many episodes of this podcast in vague areas of development that I wanted to get something out there. So I'm only going to be talking about... Uh, three films today and, and, and a little bit at the top of the show but hopefully uh, the, the runtime will be expanding and also I'll be doing more one-off shows that's part of the problem actually I can literally now I can see on my desktop at least four episodes on one-off topics like they you know, like I, when I began this podcast that uh, shows like that and which I'm itching to get finished and we will get that we will get there in the end I'm certainly sure of that but I want to go back to um, a few just some conversations I had with people since the last episode and a few questions that were emailed over to me. And I thought it might be interesting to kind of um, share some of those those thoughts and interactions with you. I won't be reading out people's names and, and emails in full, but kind of I just, I've, I've gathered up a few questions and a few um, topics that I discussed with people and I thought you might be interested in hearing. Okay, so the first area I was asked, um, did I watch the Oscars and what do I think of awards ceremonies in general 
And I have to confess, I don't watch the Oscars. I used to when I was a little bit younger. Um, I don't anymore. I, it just holds no interest to me. Um, I used to when I was younger. Um, I don't pay that a particular amount of attention. I mean, I always look up to, I, I always wake up on, the, on the, normally the Monday afterwards and kind of, I, I'm quite eager to check and see who's won. There is something, I, I suppose there's something quite fun about it. But awards ceremonies in general, I, there's an element to them which I just find a bit cringeworthy. The kind of the, the whole kind of speeches and the, the blubbing and the fact that invariably, you, especially when it comes to kind of, the, the awards season over in America, you, you kind of, you tend to be watching what really amounts to kind of giant slap on the back sessions. And they differ, I find, from things like film festivals that we have in Europe, because what I tend to find is about those is that when I hear that certain films have been nominated or, you know, kind of like the Golden Bear or that kind of thing or the, the Grand Jury Prize at Cannes, I feel way more inclined to check out those films and seek them out. And... I think that's the difference with the Oscars. Invariably, you you are watching such an American-centric celebration of film that these are ones which I don't really feel so inclined to to seek out, or I've already seen them, and I, I just it just kind of tends to wash over me. But I found this year's Oscars to be particularly galling. I have to be brutally honest with you in terms of the build-up coming up to them and. What they show, I, I think the, the key word this year uh, was diversity. And obviously the represent that the, the fact that the, the awards, I think it was the, the best actors categories and the supporting actors, there wasn't a single, they were all white basically. And this kind of raised this massive issue of, of diversity. And I think probably one of the most fundamental issues to, to, to look at here is the fact that it's blatantly apparent that the people who vote for the Oscars have a very narrow perception of cinema. It's something I've railed against before. And you know, cinema is a world concept. There is way more to it than simply Hollywood. And I think that part of the diversity issue is that people aren't watching a very wide diversity of films from around the world. They are simply watching whatever comes out of Hollywood. And this is where I, I think... Now, I can't bring myself to feel sorry for Will Smith because he hasn't been nominated for Concussion. I, I, I didn't see Concussion. Um, I, I noticed he, it looked like it was a Will Smith being being very, very serious Will Smith. And it, I suppose it's part of the wider issue of Hollywood as well. You know, I can't really be overly moved that Jennifer Lawrence earns a few million less than Chris Pratt. In it, We live in a time where women are still having battery acid thrown in their faces. And there is obviously... There is obviously a huge issue the world over with women's rights, but as soon as you start literally talking about the fact that the the, the pay in Hollywood is there isn't piety um, between men and females, well, that's yeah, obviously that is an issue of such. But the fact that you know, you've got we're talking millions here, I, I find it very hard to be to, to really kind of motivate myself to feel that bothered by that aspect of gender pay inequality. Now. The solution um, in terms of the Oscars and this, this diversity issue seems to be that the Academy is going to look at its membership and the authenticity of its, of its makeup.
Now, if we're to believe the Academy, the idea that by having a more ethnically diverse voting base will then mean that there'd be a, a more diversity amongst the kind of the people and the films that are being nominated. I think that really leads to a kind of fundamental question, really, which in, in terms of this being, you know, apparently Oscars are represented representative of the best of the year. Is that really going to ensure that happens? And now, I would actually contest, no, it won't. Now, now, obviously, the Oscars are on this kind of, they're going to be doing this massive amount of souls, or the Academy Wave, whatever you call it. They're going to be doing this soul searching so they can, how they can look at addressing this diversity issue. So let's just say, for example, that overnight the, the Academy membership was made up of 25% white people, 25% black, 25% Asian, 25% Hispanic. That's just, I know that's not going to happen, but let's just, let's just play this, let's just run this, this scenario. Now, if the aim is to have a more diverse selection of, people being nominated and it's assumed that you're going to achieve this by having a more diverse membership i would contest really that that might not actually be a particularly good thing because let's take for example will smith again in the film concussion let's say he did get an overwhelming amount of votes and support from black members of the academy and got nominated for an oscar but what does that actually prove now you will have a situation whereby People in films are being nominated to simply show diversity. It would be a completely tokenistic gesture. And I don't really see what that achieves because surely the point of the Oscars is to highlight the very best of the year. Now, again, I haven't seen Concussion. Will Smith's performance might be incredible. It also might be utter tosh. He might have been nominated over someone far more deserving who just happened to be white but because of the fact that there was this agenda to push this diversity theme that person gets completely shut out of the picture as it were and I, I don't agree that that is actually a good film what you're not going to see from the model or the, the model that I proposed or if you were aiming to have something like that you're not going to see a massive increase in films from Asia Africa and Europe being nominated for Oscars because the simple fact of the matter, these films, films from this area, they're, they're largely ignored year after year. I mean, there is a best foreign language um, Oscar. But that, I mean, that really sums up just how narrow the view is anyway. Because what what I would, would think would happen, you'll get the likes of films like Concussion, um, Selma, which I did actually quite like. But I mean, it's not... It's not one of the best films of the year. I mean, you know, I know, I know Quentin Tarantino made a, made a comment about the fact the direction of it, the, the direction on it was quite um, TV movie esque. And I, I, I think that was a little bit perhaps crudely stated. There was nothing about that film that would even come close to the sheer genius of someone like Peter Strickland um, for the work he did on the Duke of Burgundy. Peter Strickland would not get within a thousand miles of the Oscars. And, and, and this, is kind of, this is also my point. You, you would have films like The Butler, you know, this kind of mediocre... I mean, The Butler's terrible, but just mediocre films that would be getting a great deal of undue attention for the mere reason that well, they were being made or starring people that were seen to be underrepresented. Now, I, I believe that the way around it would be to have... Uh, to, to scrap having an open vote, what they do amongst the members... And just to say, right, from now on, we're going to have a hand-picked jury every year, a la something like Cannes. And you could you could then 
pick from a wide selection of talent and ethnicities. And I think you'd get a much better picture. Also, you could, you know, you could have like producers, actors, whatever, editors. You know, you could really, you know, I don't know, I'm not saying how many people should be in this jury, but I think it would be a far more interesting way of ensuring that there was a right mix between quality and and highlighting the, the diversity in people out there. But at the moment, however, I feel like we are in the cult of political correctness. And there seems to be a kind of a, a reason most people who feel like they have an entitlement to seem aggrieved and offended. And I don't say this flippantly, but this whole debate leaves me kind of genuinely baffled. I, I, at times I just don't know how I feel about it. And of, of course, I don't. I, you know, any kind of marginalisation and discrimination is, is completely wrong. Yet I have to feel on the flip side that we are becoming. Well, it seems to be. I mean, I, I'm in terms of, and you're used to terms of the regressive left. That it just seems to be so much white noise out there that it it, it has the opposite effect to me. I, I tend to find myself kind of pushing away from it, and I don't, I don't mean that's new. I'm giving myself free reign to go and scream at Asian people and shit. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying that at all, but I just find that I kind of my eyes roll a little bit when I hear, for example, the just this kind of at the moment transgender is a word I just can't seem to get away. Every time I go on a news website or some Facebook or whatever, there's, there seems to be an, an article about the transgender phobic or whatever, and I. It, it, it has reached a point of saturation for me a little bit. And I, I, I do feel perhaps that there are bigger issues going on in the world that deserve a lot more intention. And I simply don't agree with like having a quota system to represent anything. I recently read an article, I think it's JJ Amber Abrahams is going to have um, a quota system in the films that he makes to ensure that there's a, a, a fair degree of diversity. And I, I find that slightly ridiculous, to be brutally honest with you. I mean, take, for example, if we, if we were to watch a film about ancient Rome, about Julius Caesar, for example, am I going to see in in the Roman Senate, you know, 10 token black people there just to show you just to show some diversity? And this is, you know, because it, that would be historically inaccurate. There's, that's the simple fact of the matter. I, I, I don't I don't think it'd be racist to have a film about Rome with an all-white Senate or Italian Senate, Latin, I don't know. But my, my, my point is being, is if we're just going to do this for the sake of doing it, I think we need to be a little bit careful, really, because I, I think it will give, because I actually think there is the, the possibility that it will just make things a lot worse. I mean, cause I, I do genuinely believe there is the potential that this kind of thinking can, could do more harm than good. And I suppose it comes back to really the Oscars in general. If the if the, if if it has to make up its mind whether it wants to be an award ceremony to recognise the best achievements in film and filmmaking over course year, or it wants to be a celebration of cinema. And I think if it goes down, I think, but both are kind of completely irrelevant to me. I I I'm interested to see where it goes. Um, and if, if you know, my kind of like prediction um, comes true, I, I certainly hope it doesn't. I, I, I would like to think that people would simply vote for what they consider the best without some kind of 
agenda behind where they cast their vote. And that's a slightly long-winded answer. Um, or, or really, I suppose it, this this uh, response from me kind of came from a, a few emails I was having back and forth. But um, I was also asked um, about what kind of other podcasts that I listen to. And um, I'm the, the, the easiest way I can go about this is to simply open up iTunes right now and I will read uh, from top to bottom ones I currently have on. Um, I listen to Common Sense with Dan Carden. And I also, um, a rather brilliant podcast, a kind of side podcast he does, which is Dan Khan's Hardcore History. Um, I can recommend both of them. Dan's a really such, I'd, I'd love Dan to have been, been a teacher at my school. I think he would have been a pretty great guy to um, to, to have uh, standing up there in the class and kind of stoking your interest. His uh, Hardcore History uh, podcast on the origins of the uh, of world war one are absolutely incredible it's called blueprint for armageddon there's i think there's five parts um i listened to a max hastings um audiobook that was i actually bought off audible and i think dan possibly i mean max hastings is a great author anyway but i, I think i actually enjoyed this one even more um just just brilliant um so interesting um so fascinating and uh, you can actually buy episodes um he doesn't have them all available on his feed, uh, which I have absolutely no issue with as well, by the way. I, you know, podcasters are free to do whatever they want. And I have actually gone to his website and bought the other episodes. They're worth every single penny. So definitely check out both of Dan Kynes. Um My my current favourite podcast at the moment, however, is um, the Waking Up podcast um, by the author Sam Harris. Absolutely brilliant stuff. Sam, um, I first discovered his books a few years ago and I, he's... A public figure who I'm just always really interested in what he has to say, and he has some brilliant episodes, such as um, interviewing the granddaughter of Fred Phelps, who was the obviously the uh, leader of the Westboro Baptist Church, and he, from a film point of view as well, he, he did a brilliant opera um, podcast with uh, Joshua Oppenheimer, who directed The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. And what's rather interesting about Sam is that he's, and one of the interesting things about Sam's podcast, where he sometimes has guests on who. Uh, have a very different opinion to him and one of the reasons why I find kind of discussing films in public forums quite annoying especially online is the fact that you just come sometimes you just come up to this stone wall of opinion where you try and engage these people to kind of find out where they're coming from and it just backfires and it's interesting because sometimes he does that on his podcast with people and I think in a way they make for the least interesting of his shows but they're also quite interesting because you can kind of I can recognise the frustration in trying to engage those who you have a different opinion and when it just simply doesn't work. Um, next up is the Criterion Cast Master Feed. There's so many, I mean, obviously Master Cinema on that, so I, I, that's my other podcast in case you don't know of you, Kim. And we're on that as well, and it's still going strong. Um, they've got uh, a nice variety, I think, of different people contributing to it now. And it's a really, it's, it's very, obviously, it's Criterion Master Cinema, and it, it, I guess it's kind of niche boutique blu-ray nirvana um but i i yeah i still love the criterion cast it's still one of the best that's that's ever been going um looking at the hollywood gauntlet which is um well i suppose one half of the hollywood saloon carried it on with some new guests there the john jansen podcast that um hasn't been quite as um prolific in recent months it was but it's still it's still i mean there was a last show there's one back in december um but yeah still you know ridiculously long episodes really interesting and we've had john johnson on the master cinema cast 
and, and John was, I suppose, when I listened to the Hollywood Studio, and that was what, what spiked my interest in podcasts or anything. But that's it at the moment. And I would actually say that's a, it's a good time to ask if you have any podcast suggestions for me, do send them on because um, I would like to uh, discover some more and uh, give time to them. But yeah, that, that's it for the time being. So uh, I will post links up actually in the episode notes on the blog so you can go to those and check them out for yourselves um i have another comment uh, another uh, question actually which was relating to uhd would i be upgrading um to to you know this new 4k blu-ray format or whatever is or ultra high definition christ i don't know i don't know what the classification is which is part of the reason why i won't be because i simply don't know what tech i need quite yet to make this upgrade um i do need why well, i don't need a new tele i want a new television so i might tentatively dip my toe but um so far um like a lot of kind of early format releases there hasn't really been anything that's jumped out we've obviously got the usual crappy selection of films like hancock and stuff like that but i'm just really i just still really like blu-ray i, I you know and i know obviously there's the i was saying this when the blu-ray came out that you know i didn't really see i see the point of making the upgrade and i did in the end and i probably will with uhd eventually but for the moment i'm just going to leave it well alone the discs are like 25 quid each they're a lot more expensive than blu-ray um I'm not exactly overly sure uh, what what I need. I mean, I know I need a new player to play it, but um, I was looking at new tellies the other day, and, I, and there's so many specifications and different labels attached to them that I just I, I need. I think I need to sit down and digest it all and have a little bit of a think about it. But for the time being, I'm perfectly happy with my 1080 projector in my loft. Um, the picture on that is fantastic. Blu-rays are a great product. I mean, you can pick them up on an absolute snip now as well. I, I say this every time a new format comes out. I can't see myself going back and buying all the films that I've bought on Blu-ray on UHD. But I'm sure there will... And 2001 is normally the film that is my crossover where I go... I went from VH... It was 2001... Um, made me get into blu-rays and you know endlessly comparing it to the picture quality of the dvd so perhaps in a couple of years when that comes out it might be the catalyst for me to to upgrade but for the time being i'm going to leave it alone i think it uh, it needs to uh it needs to kind of find its feet a little bit before i go jumping in the big news obviously though um that came to light and i I was so impressed um i think joachim uh, I think he texted me or something or sent me an email or on Messenger. And he was like, Criterion's coming to the UK. And I, I, I'd just woken up and had a bit of a hangover. And I was like, what's he talking about? And lo and behold, um, the, the, the sheer joy that the Criterion collection is coming to the UK. This is something we've been thinking about for years. I, I get the films imported over normally. And sometimes I get stung at the post office and have to fork out the bastard handling fee which basically consists of someone saying oh this is from abroad and then saying that's 12 pounds please so i'm 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 quite i'm overjoyed that the criterion collection is coming to the uk i don't think however that we're going to be seeing them releasing all the spine numbers here the opening selection i think um is quite interesting there's some I've, i've i've ordered them all um i'm gonna buy them I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to collecting them. Um, but let's not forget that a lot of the films in the Criterion Collection are already out on the UK um, on different labels, such as Arrow and Studio Canal and things like that. 
And just to give a kind of point of reference, I picked up um, in FOP in Manchester, £6, the Arrow edition of Thief. And I compared it to the uh, Criterion edition Blu-ray and the picture seems to be the same. There's fantastic features. So although a lot of the films that are in the Criterion collection that we, we, we aren't necessarily released in the UK on Criterion, you can still pick up brilliant versions of them on other labels. Um, you know, Master Cinema 2. And I think what this does show, I think one of the things I'm quite encouraged by is the fact that surely Criterion have spotted the fact that there is a market in the UK for boutique uh, labels. People are still interested in buying physical media. And I know that I think it's Sony who are actually handling the distribution. I think it's Sony presents the Criterion collection. I think that's how it's being branded. But clearly they've, they've, not they've noticed the fact that people are still buying a lot of physical media in this country. And I think that's a good thing. I, 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 what I hope it doesn't do is it, it, harms label, it harms other labels like Arrow and Master Cinema. I'd be intrigued to see if there's kind of any kind of uh, bidding wars for, um, for catalogue titles and, and releases going forward. I think it's going to be a very interesting time. I'm sure it's something we'll be covering on the Master Cinema cast. Um, but I, I think there's room for all these um, companies to exist in the marketplace. I'm certainly very interested. And I know I used to do Criterion Roundup episodes and I got so far behind that I never managed to catch up. So what I'm going to do is relaunch the Criterion Roundup episodes, but do them for the UK releases. So that will start in April. I've pre-ordered them all. So as soon as they arrive, I will have a look through and we'll, we'll start that again. Because I did like doing those episodes, but like I said, I got so far behind. And I, I was thinking perhaps of toying as well of going back through the Criterion catalogue and doing one-offs on them. So definitely, I think, you know, Criterion's coming to the UK and it'll be coming back to this podcast, I'm pleased to report. So, so without any further ado, I'm going to get on with this month's uh, reviews. Started. You're running now. Huh? Okay, fine. In 1966, Francois Truffaut published a series of in-depth conversations with Alfred Hitchcock about his entire body of work. Truffaut, half Hitchcock's age, was already an internationally renowned filmmaker, and he wanted to free Hitchcock from his reputation as a light entertainer. It conclusively changed people's opinions about Hitchcock. It was a director talking about his own work in a way that was utterly unpretentious. You know, they were talking about the craft. Seven days. Seventy setups. And I shot some of it in slow motion. Where it sort of lays out all of the cutting pattern, contextualizing what the work of a director truly is. You know, I had a paperback. It's not even a book anymore. It's like a stack of papers. The Truffaut Hitchcock book was really revolutionary. We became radicalized as movie makers. It was almost as if somebody had taken a weight off our shoulders and said, yes, we can embrace this, we could go. I have a favorite little saying to myself, logic is dull. This is somebody whose mind is racing, filled with ideas. That's why we refer to him all the time. He's making floors out of glass so he can show the apartment above. Things that make cinema magic. I'm never satisfied with the ordinary. I've tried to play the audience like an organ. You know, there are certain rules, and he destroyed all those rules.
interested in the audience. Obviously, they're going to sit there and say, show me. I know what's coming next. <laughs> I have to say, do you? Okay, so let me start this with a small disclaimer. It took me a really long time to get into Alfred Hitchcock films. Um, my younger self thought they were great looking, but a little bit silly. And my older self thinks exactly the same thing with the added caveat that they are also masterfully crafted pieces of cinema that first and foremost are hugely entertaining, but also practically beg to be unpicked and explored further. Hitchcock belongs to a very select group of Hollywood directors who were the stars of their own films and Hitchcock's name along, alone was the biggest draw to his work and I would heartily recommend watching the trailers for his films, especially the, the brilliant one for Psycho which never really fails to amuse me and you always get this impression that when you watch his, his, his trailers that he's inviting you into his own little world and he, he, he certainly is very amusing and, and witty in them. And I think it's rather brilliant. Sadly, we don't have any kind of thing to compare it to these days. Yet, his films were made for the masses, yet he was also the darling of film critics, most notably those of Chaos de Cinema, where the likes of André Bazin, Jean-Luc Godard, and most pertinently, François Truffaut, lauded and dissected and celebrated his work. Truffaut reached out to Hitchcock and asked the writer if he would be prepared to sit down and discuss his films on a film-by-film basis, and Hitchcock readily agreed, and the subsequent discussion formed the basis of Truffaut's book, Hitchcock Truffaut, which he revised several times over the years as Hitchcock made more films. And it, for a long time it was the go-to guide on the work of Hitchcock, and arguably still is for those wanting to look at the great director's work. In the age of digital also, with you know, Kindles and audiobooks, there's something ultimately rather satisfying about having a large tome to sit down and pour through the images and writings. I rather fear that this form of discovering and enjoying film will become something of the past, rather sadly. So I was particularly delighted when Kent Jones's excellent new film, Hitchcock Truffaut, was playing at home in Manchester. And even more pleased when I walked into the cinema alone to find myself amongst a subtly film nerd crowd, mostly consisting of fellow soul, fellow soul cinema goers such as myself. And having engaged a person next to me in conversation was there on the basis that their lecturer from Manchester University had told them that uh, they needed to go and see this film urgently. Now the first thing to note about Ken Jones's films is that this is not the story per se of how Hitchcock and Truffaut came together, although it does cover that, but more I think it's an expansion and companion piece to the original book. And this is very much a documentary that celebrates film, and I believe it's one of the reasons why it works so well, because firstly Truffaut himself was a director, and everyone who participates in the film, from Martin Scorsese, Peter Bodanovich, Wes Anderson, David Fincher, and to name but a few, are themselves filmmakers, and they bring, they, they manage to add something that only, I think, filmmakers could add to it. And in that regard, this was the type of documentary that if you love the art and craft of filmmaking and film history, you will be fascinated by it, as I was. And I know it sounds slightly strange to say, but th this film demands to be seen in the cinema. And I say that on the basis that this is a visual essay of one of the greatest directors who have ever lived. And cinema was the natural home for these images. 
And indeed, having seen most of Hitchcock's films on the small screen, there was something actually revelatory about seeing scenes that I'd seen so familiar with and images that are kind of really ingrained in my memory and my mind of film. For example, in Vertigo, the scene with Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak by the Golden Gate Bridge was actually jaw-dropping. And Hitchcock was not a director who made film in the widescreen frame. He instead utilised height more in the so-called academy ratios. Here the juxtaposition of actors and scenery was revelatory to me. The, the bridge became an imposing megastructure seemingly disappearing for miles into the background. And the composition alone was worthy of being hung in an art gallery. Likewise, the use of space in the birds to convey the dynamic between the characters was also startlingly apparent. Mise-en-scene blocking and its reverence to storytelling has become a sadly negative part of celebrating film and filmmaking. We simply you don't hear people talking about it enough, I don't think. And when you have the likes of David Fincher and Martin Scorsese textualising Hitchcock's work in relation to their own experiences of filmmaking, it made me personally simply even more interested in Hitchcock's work and ignited my interest in the films that he had made and those of the filmmakers who were talking. And prior to seeing this, I'd gone to watch Gone. I'd watched Gone Girl again, the, the David Fincher film. If you recall, that made my my top ten of uh, 2014. I think it was. And I, if you recall, I actually speculated that I wondered if the film would stand up and hold up on repeat viewings. And I'm pleased to report that it certainly did. Yet seeing this film through the prism of Fincher's admiration for Hitchcock really kind of showed me how. Hitchcock's legacy is one of restraint. You find fear in the pauses, the waiting in the shadows. And the way he kind of plays with audiences, expectations and fears, I think you become far more active when you're watching a Hitchcock film because it's almost like he's reaching out to you and making you think a lot more. And what you find when I was watching the likes of Gone Girl and I'd also watched um, over that weekend Zodiac, is that how Fincher has learned this and, and has given it his own unique spin. And make no mistake, he's, he's simply not ripping off or copying. He's just simply learning and digesting another filmmaker's style and interpreting it through his own filter and personality. And what you get is the DNA of Hitchcock remains, yet the end product is something in, an entirely new creation. And what else, I think, where else this kind of documentary, I think, really works is that Truffaut's interest in Hitchcock's style also extended to what degree Hitchcock's own personality went into the films. And this is, of course, one of the key facets of auteur theory. Hitchcock was a Catholic, and the concept of original sin and Catholic guilt has been a great source of conjecture amongst film theorists when discussing his work. Certainly, the film does give a selection of interesting examples of why this may be, and I have, in my time studying Hitchcock, found this area to be often be open to levels of interpretation whereby it seems the theory is being made to fit the film a little too much, leading to what I would argue was a somewhat tenuous link between theory and practice. But this is not to be dismissive, and indeed one of the lectures um, which I attended back at uh, film school was that... This is not to be dismissive, and indeed one of my lecturers um, at university actually said that um, most of what was written about Hitchcock was utter crap, and I certainly don't agree with this, but perhaps there is a case for over-appreciation and over-analysis, yet for me I always find myself returning to Truffaut's book as the basis for the of, of where I want to explore Hitchcock further. One of the I think the most important aspects of the book is that 
Truffaut is trying to show Hitchcock that he is more than simply a conjurer or an entertainer. And the film also delves into this. And I think it's an interesting debate to have because what is the line between great artist and the entertainer? We, we don't often see the two as being mutually exclusive. Michael Bay is, for many, a laborious hack whose films are akin to having a lobotomy without anaesthetic. His films are only worthy of derision, some would say. They are ludicrously popular and arguably like Hitchcock. He has attained a status whereby his name is a draw alone. Although I would contest it's the premise of his films that's that's more their selling point. You know, the Transformers, you don't really need to have anything else other than writing that on something to sell it. But that being said, he is a director with whom I doubt very much in the years to come we will associate with art. Moreover, he will be discussed in terms of commerciality and but perhaps we, you know, we would be kind of quite baffled as to how his films were so popular. And indeed, just to sort of caveat that as well, if I'm sure there's many people who do think Michael Bay is an artist. He is of sorts. I mean, you know, he's, he's, he does make good looking films. And I, I wouldn't be dismissive if someone were a kind of critical praise of his work. I, I would be genuinely interested in it. Um, he just doesn't make films which appeal to me, which isn't to say that you know, we should simply dismiss him, um, as many would do. But Truffaut believed, and rightly so, I think, that Hitchcock was more than just an entertainer. And he was eager, I believe, in the best possible way to educate and inform critical opinion of him. And the film expands on this by showing Hitchcock's own concern about his relation to this. Hitchcock was, of course, a box office drawer. And if his film weren't hits, this was often associated, they were failures. And Truffaut, I believe, serves us with a timely reminder to see beyond the narrow world of commerce and look at film as art. And it's so surprising to this day how we associate purely financial failure um, as a kind of a, a label we attach to film that somehow they're not very good. I mean, take for example, I, I've spoken about it before, but John Carter is a really great film. It's, it's really entertaining. It's, it's, but on the basis that it was it lost a lot of money, it's seen as a flop and some people simply won't watch it because of that tag, which is you know ridiculous. And Vertigo was the most notable of Hitchcock's films to suffer from this. Now, I have my own opinions of that film. I think it's utterly ridiculous. Um, yet at the time, it was did not do good business at the box office and in time it became manna from heaven for Hitchcock fans and we think of it as a masterpiece indeed Sight and Sound recently declared it the greatest film of all time uh, knocking Citizen Kane off the perch been there for very many many years and to me this really shows the importance of film criticism and film history film is art and after all we need to remind ourselves about that and think about that in context Now, Hitchcock is a director with whom it took me years to get to love. And when I'm, when, now I'm finally there. I find his film to be completely joyous. Truffaut, too, is a lesson in how much, in how passion and love for the medium should be celebrated. Here was a man, arguably one of the all-time great directors, in my opinion, who he's not so much paying homage, but trying to make us understand why he felt Hitchcock should be seen as more than just a cog in the Hollywood system. And yet, now, although I think... This is a Hitchcock Truffaut is a reverential piece, both this this book and this film. I think it it also shows us of just how talented and brilliant Truffaut was at interviewing Hitchcock and discussing these films because because what I found is that by reading this book and seeing this film, it was a deeply enriching, entertaining. And above all, it reminded me of how much I loved film in the first place. And this film, 
I think expands upon that. And it, it was come the end credits, there was uh, everyone who was watching this film, and it was quite interesting because of a lot of people in the cinema watching this. There was people were. were leaving the cinema smiling and, and kind of laughing at it. it not, not laughing at it kind of mockingly but laughing at it in a good way and I think it's yes it might be uh, one for the film purists and film fans I can't if you were just a casual casually watching this and you didn't really have much interest in the subject I don't think you'd get a great deal out of it but I cannot recommend this enough and do pick up the book as well because um, it it is quite hard to get hold of at the moment. I certainly couldn't find. Um, I actually had. I've actually had to buy another copy because I can't remember what I did with my last one. But um, I got picked up for about fifteen quid off the internet, and I, I, I didn't. I have noticed um, in the whilst I've been kind of preparing for this episode, it is getting slightly hard to get hold of. So do pick it up. And this film, I believe, it's out quite soon on DVD. It had got a very small release window. So do check it out. That's Hitchcock Truffaut, a brilliant documentary. If you touch me, I'll kill myself. There's a sword to do it with. Because I'm going to touch you. Come on! Kick! Bite! Scratch! Fight me. I will not lift one finger to resist you. I want this slave alive. The sun will cross the sky a thousand times before he dies. You'll wish a thousand times that you were dead. To a Viking, there was so no for Sam to get back into the habit of looking at recent blu-ray and home cinema releases perhaps also i'll be looking at things that kind of come out on streaming services like um netflix and amazon prime because i definitely think there's a certainly with netflix they're doing their originals um series of films and definitely one of the films i really enjoyed last year was uh, beasts of no nation so i might be looking at those as well in the future but i decided to pick a film this month which has recently come out on kino in America and it's a film which I think which kind of reminded me of the joy and the fun of film. Now we are very much in the post 9-11 apocalypse world. Everything is dark, conflicted and angst ridden. And yes, that is a massive generalization, but I think you kinda of, kinda of get my point. And I think one person who I could I, I would contest who actually kind of gets the fact that film should be really good fun is Tom Cruise and the excellent Mission Impossible films. Um, but they're so joyously ludicrous that you can't help go along with the fun. And somehow, to me, they're kind of like, it's like watching a modern-day Errol Flynn with Tom Cruise sometimes, you know, kind of hanging off the side of planes and doing these kind of death-defying stunts. And the film I'm going to talk about kind of reminded me, in a way, um, of the experience that I had in watching the last Mission Impossible film. Because back in the 1950s, there was an acting producer powerhouse who seemed to get the idea that sometimes people just wanted to go to the cinema and have a great time. And his name was Kirk Douglas, and the film I'm going to talk about today is Richard Fleischer's The Vikings, which was actually produced by Douglas himself. Now, when I kind of heard that Kino were putting out the Blu-ray of this, I was um, quite excited because before I've only had this film on VHS, I had it on DVD as well, and that was actually an anamorphic version. But um, 
I was interested to see how, how this film would shape up on Blu-ray and because now I've got a kind of projector and things like that. I, I, I wanted to enjoy this film in as, as close to a kind of a theatrical presentation as I could. Now, the film stars obviously Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis, Janet Lee, Ernest Borgheim and some narration by Orson Welles. And the cinematographer was the great Jack Cardiff and, of course, Richard Fleischer was long on directing. Now, The Vikings is a gorgeous-looking romp that cannot help draw you in with the scenes of drinking and laughing and axe-chucking and some genuinely great stunt work. And the story consists of a three-way love affair between Douglas and Curtis fighting over the love of Janet Leave and the quest for a real, who, to find out who the real king of England is and who has the rightful place on the throne. And it's a fairly standard um, storyline. I'll get to the more of that in a minute, but... Made in 1958, Hollywood had this time survived the onslaught of television and was firmly in the age of the epic. Now, The Vikings was not one of the 70mm um, road shows that would kind of come rolling into town to take, take up the cinema for, for three years. It was in fact filmed on 35mm Technorama film stock. And that, that's not to say, I, I think, that this film doesn't have a certain visual clout because make no mistake the vikings looks absolutely incredible and it was filmed in norway and germany and there are moments really when you see some of the the, the landscapes where the jaw actually drops um, i was recently in ireland and um i was hiking up to the top of the mountain near where my girlfriend lives and i kind of just stopped and looked back and it kind of reminded me really the, the film actually reminded me of what I was seeing and that kind of that feeling and it's it's quite strange when you kind of literally sat there in your chair watching a film made in the 1950s and it takes you back to a moment the week before where you were kind of in awe of nature and I think that kind of hopefully gives you some idea of how good it actually looks and one of my bugbears I suppose about films made in the old Hollywood studio system and this isn't to say I think where the kind of the, where you watch film for the story is obviously the central premise and you get swept on that. But sometimes I do find myself, even with the likes of films like Casablanca to a degree, where you're completely aware of the fact that you are watching a film that is made in the back of a studio background. And Robin Hood, um, the Errol Flynn version, is, is one of those most notable examples that they never left Hollywood to make that film. Apparently, it was filmed in Nottingham, but yeah, it's not to. I'm not slagging off the film, and I'm not kind of dis I'm not dismissing it in a way, but the difference between a studio battle and going out and doing the real thing is chalk and cheese, really. And the Vikings work so well because you believe it when you see those fields. Sorry, they are they're staggering to see. And Fleischer spent two years researching the film, even down to the Viking boats um, that were actually made from replicas, which were found, I think, by archaeologists and. The sort of the issue was with, with these boats was they were so realistic that the actual cast were too big for them because in the days of old, you know, humans were a lot smaller. And it's quite a nice, I, I kind of like little touches like that because you, this isn't Hollywood doing, you know, they don't ramp up the size of the boats so they're absolutely gargantuan. They're quite small. And perhaps some people might sort of say, well, they don't look big enough. But I like the fact that the reason they are the size they are is because there was this kind of commitment to accuracy to an extent. Now, I kind of say that in inverted commas because um, these Viking camps, these people, you, they're a little bit too clean, I think, um, really. Every, everyone looks kind of shaggy and 
almost caveman like but everyone seems remarkably well turned out with makeup and perfect teeth um it, it i think of the, the uh, i've only watched one series of it so far but the viking series that's currently um i think it's playing on amazon prime um that that, that kind of takes the uh goes the complete opposite direction you can literally feel the grime coming off the screen you say you don't have anything like that in the in this version of the vikings but all of this really simply plays in for the fun for me now another kind of little fact in this is that Ernest Borgheim plays um Kirk Douglas's father but he was only actually older than him by about two months which I find incredible um and his, his character Ragnar just kind of he's, he's constantly laughing um, and it's impossible not to, to love him indeed the Vikings main occupations in, in life seem to be beer women and raiding and PC this film may not be but I don't really imagine equality was really a burning issue in the age of Thor and Odin um, the Vikings may not break the mould for its storytelling it's not a particularly original tale um, it's not groundbreaking by any stretch of the imagination and I think Epics in general tend to juxtapose melodrama with tales of simmering love and revenge, or indeed both. And the Vikings don't overcomplicate its story with unnecessary subplots. And um, I think there's a very economical aspect to the filmmaking. At just under two hours, it feels like a lot happens, but the film never feels like it's going to collapse under its own weight. And indeed, the film does, I think... Um, make its direction abundantly clear yet i think generally i think it subverts the kind of the idea of um douglas's um persona really um he plays captain called diner and he, he kind of positioned as both a hero and a villain to a degree and you're never quite sure which way he's going to go and indeed as the film builds towards its climax i i never felt to really kind of hold my breath as to to, to my what occur and the vikings i think one of its strongest aspects is the stunt work um there's just a few little things um, that you see, like, for example, the Vikings um, attempting to run along the oars of the boat. And it seems quite pedestrian, but it's still they're still doing it. It's still actually good fun to watch. But the, the, the film's climax is a scene and we're attack on an, um, an English castle. And Ina and his men throw axes at a drawn bridge. And then Ina jumps across the chasm and clings onto the... Uh, axes and climbs his way up the bridge to release it so everyone can run across it and it's it's a brilliant scene and yes that the bridge isn't hundreds of feet in the in the air and indeed it's not the biggest jump in the world but it's still a great stunt to watch you can tell it's been done for real and that makes such a difference and again go back to tom cruise um when you see him hanging off the side of a plane he's hanging off the side of a plane and full credit to him because it's completely it, it makes you it just draws you in so much more and I think that's another thing I was thinking about when I was watching The Vikings, that in the age of CGI, the film might look a little bit tame. Um, take, for example, there's a, there's a scene where the Vikings attack an English ship and they're kind of chucking spears and firing arrows at each other. But quite clearly, this is actually being done. And yet the arrows and the spears most seem to be flying incredibly slowly and falling short as well. And it almost looks a bit amateurish, I suppose. But in the age of CGI, we would see them being fired miles um, in front and landing plumb in someone's eye and it doesn't it just doesn't happen and I still really enjoy it I I, I wasn't taken out of the film indeed I just I, I just appreciated the fact that I was watching something which was clearly being done and this film was a stable of my childhood and I seem to remember I had it on VHS and then I, I the 
the, I remember the DVD was incorrectly uh, labelled that the framing was 4-3 when in fact it wasn't such 2-3-5-1 and I remember I, I remember being really pleased when I found this out because I could go back and buy it and it was a uh, it was one of the first, there was, there was that phase with DVDs, I seem to recall, where they kind of started off as incredibly expensive. And then as kind of the years went on, you could pick them up for like three pounds and things like that in H&V. And I think I picked this up one bank holiday, um, April, many, many years ago, probably about 2003, 2004. And yeah, I really loved seeing it in the widescreen, but seeing it again um, projected uh, from this Blu-ray, it, it was a rev revelation. It was like seeing the film for the first time again. And you know, Jack Cardiff, Again, I, I can't really get enough of his work. Um, I, I had the pleasure once of doing it, working on a documentary about him, and it just made me fall in love with everything that he's done. And um, if I was being slightly critical of the film, I sometimes think Fleitch's direction um, could it could be described as a little bit flat. Sometimes I I, I do sometimes think the Vikings has quite a stagey feel to it, and I think that probably comes in from the widescreen frame. I'm not sure this is, although it had been widescreen had been around for a while. Um, I'm not sure a lot of directors had really kind of mastered it yet. And some of the scenes, they do kind of take, they do seem like you're watching a play being put out before you, where you just see kind of a static camera and people walking, the, the blocking, just people walking from left to right. But um, where it works best is obviously when we're out in the kind of the fields and we're seeing this epic scenery. But um, it would be overcritical of me, I think, to say that, it, you know, it, it's... It's a boring film, which certainly isn't. I was just I was slightly aware on occasion that it, things were a little bit static. But um, on the Blu-ray itself, this is by no means a perfect digital presentation of the film. Um, firstly, the soundtrack has many pops and cracks on it. And that, that's a shame, really, because I don't think it's, it's that hard. Really. I mean, I can do it now. and I do it through my work all the time. I open up Audition, put some audio in, and, and you can not it doesn't take that much time to really kind of go over audio and make it sound a lot better and it doesn't seem to be much restoration like, as well as the negative um it does look great there's no there's no about that but this was an mgm film and the fact that it's released by kino to me suggests that there wasn't really the kind of the will at mgm to to spend a great deal of money on a full-blown restoration it does look great i mean very filmic um it's one of the, the the great things about the projector. I've got a Sony projector, and I really think that once I kind of brought this projector and got over kind of turning off all the kind of the artificial frame creation and all that kind of nonsense, it does give a really genuinely filmic picture. It doesn't seem kind of overly saturated and thing like that. And the Vikings, for all intents and purposes, looked like I was having a film projected in front of me, which is obviously what you want, but. I did feel that perhaps there could have been a little bit of work and there was some fluctuations in, especially in the blacks as well, um, in the in the darker scenes. And a little bit of a shame, but I'm, I'm not, it's not to say it was a catastrophe by any stretch of the imagination. And I would dare suggest, I think, that this is probably going to be the best the Vikings is going to look on Blu-ray. Will this film get a 4K UHD, whatever the fuck it's called, I don't know. Would it get one of those? I, I Probably not for a very, very long time. And even if it did, you'd, I think you'd need to go back and really kind of do a 4K scan of the original negative and build it again. And I just don't see that's going to happen. But um, extra-wise as well, I think... Again, this is, I think, this reflective of the Viking stage. It's a liked film. I don't think it's a loved film. Um, and th th there wasn't any kind of retrospective going back and having a look at it. And um, there was a rather fluffy uh, original making of, but nothing really of any sort. And some trailers, which I, I still can't really bring myself to call trailers special features. But all that aside, um, the Vikings may seem a little bit fluffy by modern standards. And by modern standards, I'm not really saying anything um, other than angst and misery. Of course, I'm going back to my massive generalisation, but 
and I think what the remi- the Vikings reminded me of going back, it's just it's an old fashioned rip roaring yarn, and in the age of darkness and angst, I think there's there's a lot to be said for these kind of shining lights amongst all the, all the gloom. So definitely, if uh, I managed to pick it up on on Blu-ray, I had it sent over from America. I think it's about twelve quid or something like that. But if you are in America and you have fond memories of the Vikings, I can hardly I can really recommend picking this up again. Okay, so a lot of you sent in some very kind emails about my guilty pleasure pick last week. And I, uh, sorry, my last episode. And I think I should have, I think I, looking back, I think I should have um, rephrased uh, Escape to Victory as a, more of a guilty pleasure, but as one you might have missed. And I think I'm going to do that. Um, I think I'm going to mix it up with guilty pleasures and one you might have missed, which are kind of films which perhaps have gone under your radar and you haven't thought about seeing for or hopefully you've never heard of. Um, and I might want to check out, but I'm absolutely 100 convinced, percent convinced that today's film is a guilty pleasure. And before I even, I, I was too ashamed to even say what this film was at the start of the episode. So I'm just going to, I'm going to ease it in. So we, we, we don't have to kind of get the embarrassment out of the way and you kind of stop listening and unsubscribe. So Let's just look at some facts about this film. Firstly, it grossed $800 million, which obviously means it was incredibly popular. Now, it obviously joins a club of films which have grossed a lot of money and are absolute crap. Um, I won't mention them. You can probably guess what I'm talking about. But it has a three and a half star rating by Roger Ebert himself. This is when he's alive. So three and a half stars from Roger Ebert. Three out of four as well, by the way. I've never understood the four. That seems like a really random number. If, if someone can educate me as to why he only had a four star rating please please let me know because five seems a lot easier doesn't it you can just say three as opposed to three and a half i don't know if I, let me know anyway if anyone knows do, do educate me on that one but okay so this film has to be good right well possibly not and the film i'm going to be talking about is from the master of destruction himself Roland Emmerich, and I'm ashamed to admit it that it is the Earth Apocalypse Opus 2012. That is my guilty pleasure pick of the month. So let's get one thing perfectly clear. I like this film. I find it quite funny. I find it very entertaining. And at times I actually find it quite scary. Now, of course, it's stupid. Of course, it's badly written. And of course, it's as ham-fisted as they come. But all that aside, 2012 is a lot of fun, which is kind of the point, really. Because the story, if you can call it that, consists of solar flares doing something to the Earth that the Mayans predicted. And essentially the Earth's crust goes crazy and loads of stuff blows up with a load of people running around. Um, or something like that. And there's some, there's some characters that we're supposed to care about chucked in for good measure. And of course this film is insanely loud. Now, firstly, we need to look at Ronan Emmerich. It is abundantly clear that Emmerich has a rather left-leaning view of the world, and 2012 is his avatar moment in terms of making his political and sociological beliefs abundantly clear. Emmerich clearly believes that we are one world and one people, as opposed to a series of tribes divided by fake borders and economic boundaries. The Day After Tomorrow, and yes, I have seen that film as well, I'm going to admit it now, um, inverses the American-Mexican border the flow of people between it because essentially everyone in america suddenly becomes refugees and has to kind of seek asylum in mexico um obviously i'm sure donald trump would have something to say about this but in independence day we see yes we see the americans doing most of the fighting but at least he does bother to show us that the rest of the world is chipping in too and i think we have to say 
I might be wrong on this, but I'm sure there's a scene where you see like Israeli and Arab pilots kind of looking over plans together. I'm, I'm pretty convinced there is, but you get my point. This is someone who who really wants us all to kind of say, hey, we're all humans and we're all in this together. And in 2012, Emmerich literally changes the face of the globe. Now, the only remaining habitable part of the world, in fact, becomes Africa, the very birthplace of civilization. And presumably most of the Africans living in, the, in Africa have actually survived this cataclysm and therefore humankind will once again be reborn and move out into the new world. And Emmerich also clearly has something of an issue with wealth divide. And again, 2012 highlights this, the glaring discrepancy between rich and poor. In order to survive the catastrophe, you have to be rich and powerful and low. In order to survive the catastrophe, you have to essentially buy yourself on to one of these arcs that they're building. And obviously to pay for the arcs, they need tremendous amounts of cash. Yet I'm pretty certain that if governments came together to conspire to keep this from the world, they would find ways of managing to build arcs without having to ask for a spare 10 billion off um, wealthy Arab, I'm assuming shakes and things like that. That Again, it's the screenplay. It's terrible. But... I think Edwick does kind of have a point that there's something very wrong with the world and that, that, that it exists like this. And, and you know, I'm writing on in, in wake of these uh, Panama r r revelations and then you know, it's just been discovered that shock horror that the rich and powerful don't like paying billions in tax and through various um, underhand ways avoid doing so. And you know, I think we should be bothered more and... It's, it's something which Hollywood has kind of touched upon before, especially in the film When Worlds Collide. We have a similar situation. I can't remember the character's name, but you have this kind of bitter, horrible industrialist who he's, he's managing to pay for these kind of uh, rockets to escape on the basis that he can he can go on them. And you know, whilst other people, you know, presumably far more qualified and far more of worth to the human race, are just going to simply stay behind and be killed. And... You know, we have a situation again at the moment. You know, let's go back to Donald Trump. Here's someone who could literally buy the position of the most powerful person on earth. It's a shockingly horrible um, thought that it might happen. And I, I, I think there's kind of we've, we've crossed a Rubicon really of saying, oh, it won't happen to so people genuinely believing it might happen. Um, and you can just see this kind of monopoly of the rich carrying on doing as they please and it's certainly in Britain at the moment um, I'm acutely aware of the fact that the rate the, the wealth divide sorry um, is, is all too it's a burning issue I mean I and I, I'm not sure what we can do about it it just seems that it, we're kind of stuck in this ride I, the, the people who can make a difference we kind of dismiss as being unelectable you know to take her eyes you know jeremy corbyn or, or bernie sanders and people like that. these are the people who want to stop this yet we seem unwilling to make the mental um transition to making it happen as it were and i think emmerich he does he, he it's not to kind of over emphasize the point but i think emmerich is making a very very valid point in the film and it's it's an interesting one and i think Emmerich's view of this world is that we should kind of just destroy it and start again, um, presumably at the count or cost of counting billions that will, will die in the process. But it might be um, quite extreme, but I can certainly see the fact that 
you know, we could perhaps see this as a metaphor for a kind of sociological cultural revolution. Again, I might be clutching at straws because I'm simply trying to justify the fact that I quite like 2012. Now, this is to come on to the faults of 2012, and there are many, let's, let's be brutally honest with you, because this is one of the most overly written films I've ever come across, given the central premise. Um, the protagonist, John Cusack, is the central protagonist, one of the central protagonists, sorry, is a, is a kind of one-time writer who's now divorced with two kids who prefer the stepdad over him, who is, and the stepdad is just about smug enough for us, including um, Cusack's ex-wife and his, obviously, new wife, that we, we're not that asked when he does finally die, even though it's made abundantly clear that the kids absolutely adore him. But the, the fact that this kind of whole family is reunited, um, it, it's just ridiculous. You know, why can't they just be together at the start of the film? And I, I think I'm blaming the Spielberg factor here because sometimes I think strange families are the basis of which many a blockbuster likes to kind of. I suppose to use a pizza analogy, it's, it's the it's the tomato topping. It, it's it's that, that kind of that base that if you kind of have estranged families, that somehow that creates tension and sympathy, and it kind of gives a film a dramatic impetus for them to reconcile. And in most cases, when this happens, we get abject failures. I'm looking at a film like War of the Worlds there. Indeed, the script is it falls into other just painful stereotypes and we have Woody Harrelson as some kind of mad scientist prophet type who can see what's going to happen before everyone else can he can't just be normal oh no he has to be kind of out you know wacky and crazy because that's what all scientists are you know conspiracy types are just completely bonkers in fact saying that though I have just recently listened to um, David Icke and Alex Jones talk about the reptile conspiracy that's going on in the world and how Richard Nixon flew in gay pornos porn stars for orgies in order to further his political career. And I'm, I'm not actually joking. This, they're actually talking about this. Is seriously. Um, I think that's actually infinitely more scary with the sincerity in which they're talking about it than having kind of mad shouty types. But again, coming back to 2012, it's utterly moronic. Um, and I know it's supposed to be fun, but it just isn't. It's just eye-rolling. And it, indeed, I do, do feel there needs to be a campaign to stop stereotyping nonsense in, in cinema and a lack I, I just see more and more evidence as it we go on but you know, the point of 2012 is that you know it's, it's supposed to bombard you with destruction and this is of course what it does now this of course comes at a cost and this film is wall-to-wall CGI and I'm, I'm not even gonna say it's great CGI it's you know, obviously a lot of time and effort's gone into it but it, you're constantly aware of the fact that you are watching something which is literally unbelievable. Um, and the best comparison I could think in, in recent memories was when I rewatched the Star Wars films last year leading up to The Force Awakens. Now, there's a scene, look at The Force Awakens, look at the scene where Rey meets BB-8 in The Force Awakens. Watch that scene, it's a brilliant scene. It's, I actually get a little bit emotional when I'm watching it and one of the reasons is, is because you can tell that it's real. You know, she's actually talking to something that's physically there. They have eye contact. They, they kind of emote in a way which real things do. Compare that to when in Revenge of the Sith with Obi-Wan and Anakin and they've got the CGI R2-D2. And the, the difference is so profound. It's, 
you react completely differently on an emotional level when you're so aware that something is fake. And now in 2012, you literally have billions of people being killed and you feel nothing. There is no gravity or weight to any of it. The, the plane escaped through a crumbling LA. It's like, it's like playing a computer game. I was literally yesterday um, playing Grand Theft Auto and I was having to kind of comp um, learn how to fly, which I can assume is going to be involving some bank robbery that I'm going to be sent on. And I was thinking, this is exactly like 2012. It's ridiculous. You're completely aware it's not true. And you compare that to later on in the film where they're almost being drowned in water. And that actually has some peril because it's actually happening. You can actually feel it. And yeah, that's the difference between real and live elements. Um, sorry, real and fake elements. But all that aside, I think 2012 does have some genuinely interesting moments. Um, the casting of, I think it's Chibatul Ijofa, I think that's how you pronounce his name, is, is one of the film's stronger points. I think he actually does well um, within the character. He actually, and he does actually feel like a character as opposed to more of a plot device, of which he really is. He just kind of seems to be going from one location to the next, um, putting the pieces together. But at least he actually feels like he has a bit of character behind him. Kusak must have just needed the money um, or just wanted to do something different. I'm not sure. Perhaps it was the first one. But... Yeah, 2012, all of its craziness did have me guessing as to what was going to happen um, the first time around I watched it. Indeed, it's a film that does really need to be seen on the biggest canvas possible. And it doesn't win prizes for its stability. And not, not, I don't think it's even trying to, but I hate it when people tell me that, you know, in order to enjoy a film, I need to leave my brain at the door and I will have a good time. Instead, I'd rather say this. If you're a fan of old school event films, this is a very modern incarnation of that. And you have to see it in the context of the spirit was made. Yes, 2012 is probably a load of garbage, but it's at least it's good fun. Uh, well, at least I find it good fun. And I can watch, I mean, as many depressing films as I want and kind of get what out, you know, enjoy them. But occasionally I need to just kick back, put something on and just suspend my disbelief and admit to myself that I'm enjoying some good old fashioned trash. And 2012 is trash, it's awful, it's also good fun. And really, that is one of the reasons why we watch films in the first place, surely. So please forgive me and let me know. If you do have any thoughts on 2012, let me know. And again, let me know your guilty pleasures as well because I've been very intrigued to hear them. So that's going to be it for this episode. Uh, many thanks for listening. Firstly, um, just one piece of um, housekeeping. I was going to do a 2015 review show. Um, it's just got so, when we're in April now already, and I just, it, it just keeps getting put on the back burner. So what I'm going to do on the next episode, I'll just talk about what my favourite, very briefly, I'll just talk about my top 10. We won't have a dedicated show. A bit of a shame, but it's just dragging on and on and on. And I'm just, it, I have actually recorded some of it as well. And I just sort of thought this is going to go on and on and on. It's just going to look ridiculous if I suddenly put a show out in August, which talks about 2015. So we'll, we'll, we'll gloss over it, I suppose. Uh, well, we, and, and we'll not gloss over it so much, but we'll, we'll kind of have a, we'll have a look at it in the next episode. And um, you can find me as well with Yuri Kim at the Masters of Cinema cast. That's mastersofcinemacast.blogspot.com. We're also on the Criterion cast feed. And we've recently just done our 50th episode and we've got another episode coming out soon. So do check us out. Um, you can follow me at 24framescast on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm Tom Jennings. There's a picture of me looking slightly miserable outside a bit of the Berlin Wall. So do um, befriend me. Um, you can also find me at 24framescast.blogspot.com. So many thanks for listening, and I'll be back with you soon. Bye.